You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Interstate Batteries. Interstate Batteries has been a proud supporter of the Sportsman's Nation since day one. So if you're looking for any type of batteries, whether it's for your truck, your car, your trail cameras, your rangefinder, stop into a local Interstate Batteries retail location. There are thousands upon thousands of them all over the United States. Talk with a battery specialist and get the batteries that you need to go on with your life. Interstate batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome folks to the Freshwater Bite Podcast, your source for everything freshwater fishing. I'm your host, Lee Kleino, and on this podcast, you will hear from diehard anglers like yourself, the backstories of those anglers, techniques they use, gear reviews, and everything in between. So if you like fishing, turn it up, because this episode's about to kick off right now. Yeah, you welcome back to the podcast. I appreciate you being here. And you know, we got a great podcast episode this week, and I'm gonna get right into it because there's a lot of great information here, and it's one that you guys have requested to to learn more about. And I'm joined by Matt Faust of the Ohio DNR. And Matt is Matt is originally a Wisconsin man that moved to Ohio to uh, take a job with the Ohio DNR as a biologist and Matt tells his story about how he kind of you know fell in love with Lake Erie and is fortunate to be on Lake Erie researching um, the walleye and perch populations there and you know this this is an opportunity for us or it was an opportunity for me to kind of dive more into the specifics of Lake Erie when it comes to you know bait patterns, what baits are uh, affecting the walleye population, and then kind of talk about, you know, how the walleye are behaving, how they have evolved over the years, why the population um, is so healthy, or people consider it to be so healthy nowadays. And uh, we kind of dive into the past, um, past years of Lake Erie walleye, and we just asked a lot of, you know, detailed questions, specific questions, and... um, yeah, this is a podcast full of science and biology. So I hope you guys are ready for this podcast and um, ask a lot of questions. And if you pay attention to the questions and the answers from Matt, you're going to learn a lot of information if you've ever wanted to come to Lake Erie. So I hope you guys find the value in this podcast. And just before we get into the podcast, one more quick thing. If you guys can please head on over to iTunes and or Spotify and leave a review um, five star if you think this podcast is providing great information and providing a lot of value to you guys and remember to follow me over at freshwater bite on instagram and freshwater bite page over on facebook as well so that would help me out huge and yeah so here we go without any further ado please give it up for my guest matt faust okay good yeah yeah man how you doing good how was uh yeah. how was your camping trip it was a lot of fun. We uh, went down to Salt Fork, which is, I think, the biggest state park in Ohio, um, with a group of friends, um, and did some hiking around and a lot of sitting by the campfire, eating hot dogs, and uh, just good to catch up with folks that we uh, 
don't get a chance to see a whole lot given the, the state of things in the world right now. Yeah, exactly. And it's just nice to be out and enjoying this fall weather. We're having a beautiful fall so far, I think. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been nice weather. The the wind unfortunately hasn't cooperated quite as much as I would like. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. The NWT I think uh, last week I was I follow that big time, and uh, a lot of the pros were posting photos and videos of how angry uh, you know Mother Erie was, and she was pretty pissed off. Yeah, I'm I'm curious to see uh, see how the there's another tournament. Uh, coming up on Erie this week, I believe. I'm curious to see how they do uh, with some nasty weather forecast as well. Yeah, is that the fall brawl? The fall brawl, uh, I believe that starts soon, but I thought there was another big one. Maybe I've got my week's mess mixed up. Nah. with. Uh, you, you probably got a better pulse on it than I do. No. <laughs> yeah, so... Well, hey, man. Hey, I just want to say thank you for doing this podcast. This has been something that... Um, I've, I've been trying to get a hold of someone who, you know, we deem to be very knowledgeable about that. And you, you've come highly recommended by a few folks who have heard you speak at a few different events. So I just want to say thank you for coming on here. And, uh, you know, it's something that the listeners have DM me about, have asked me to do a podcast on it. So I'm super excited to do this. Sure. Well, I'm happy to be here and hopefully I don't disappoint. No, you'll be great. So go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself. Um, maybe give a little bit of a background of where you're from and, you know, how, how you got into fishing or and or just doing what you're doing today. Sure. Uh, so, yeah, my name, my name is Matt Faust. I'm a fisheries biologist, too, with the Ohio Department of Natural Resources and the Division of Wildlife. Uh, so I work uh, in a normal year at the Sandusky Fisheries Research Station, but we've been uh, working from home, uh, and thankfully we're starting to get out in the field over the last few months. But uh, originally, I, I'm not from Ohio, so I'm, uh, I grew up in Madison, Wisconsin, and uh, grew up there, lived in Madison for the first 18 years of my life. And after I uh, graduated from high school, I went to uh, the University of Wisconsin Eau Claire, which is a smaller D3 school. Um, it's about a two and a half hour drive closer to the North Woods uh, than what Madison is. And I got my bachelor's degree there. Um, did a little bit of fish work there uh, with a good friend of mine who's actually a professor now at the University of Toledo. Oh, yeah. Um, he, um, he was doing some. Uh, salmon uh, juvenile salmon behavior and feeding ecology stuff like that and one of the tributaries to lake superior and so uh, the first fish job that i had we were wearing dry suits and jumping in a, a cold cold stream in northern wisconsin watching a uh, little baby salmon eat for uh two to three minutes at a time and watching uh, what they were eating and how aggressive they were being to other fish in the stream and uh, got chased by a bear one of the days that was uh, no one of the more shit. exciting. Yeah, <laughs> let's hear that. Let's hear that story. That's awesome. <laughs> oh, so we well, were not awesome, but I mean, you're here. It to, was, you're here to talk about it, so that's why it's awesome. Sure. So uh, we were we were moving um, from one of our downstream sites where we were. One of us was in the river, and then there was another person up on the bank keeping time and kind of recording data and stuff like that. And as we were moving down through the river, we were finishing up uh, a site and um, we were making noise. And all of a sudden, we both heard something go skittering up a tree and kind of looked around and 
uh, didn't didn't really think anything of it. I'm kind of moving further downstream, trying to find a next site that we wanted to to uh, get in the water. And we're hearing more and more branches and stuff breaking. And uh, eventually, we got a little bit uh, unnerved and decided that we needed to get out of the out of where we were because it was obviously a bear. Um, and what we think happened was the the initial noise of something running up a tree was probably a cub, and uh, it was the mama bear letting us know that uh, she wasn't too pleased and she escorted us out of the woods so once we realized what was going on we uh we got out of there pretty quick (laughs) yeah but it was uh she was probably pissed eh yeah yeah we (laughs) we could hear uh breaking breaking limbs and stuff kind of following us through the woods but yeah it was probably a i don't know a mile mile and a half hike through the woods back to where our vehicle was but uh yeah we we made it back to the vehicles pretty quick uh with with her following us oh, so man oh, well, hey, that's a cool story and it's something you could check off your bucket list if you ever wanted to you know, yeah encounter a bear yeah. something something i didn't know was on my bucket list <laughs> uh, so well cool so yeah what, how, how was it just curious real quick what did you find out about the 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 salmon fry and their feeding habits were they pretty aggressive when they were you know eating in the river there so they were we were looking at you're testing my knowledge here. Um, Sorry. No, that's all right. Um, so they, we were interested in the the sort of interaction between how big the school was that the the salmon were in. Okay. And how much um, how much food the individual fish were consuming in a given period. Okay. And so the thought was that um, the bigger the schools, the the less the fish might be able to eat um, individually. But then because they're in the schools, um, they're also, you know, there's a benefit to being in a school of fish so that, you know, when a a bird of prey or something swoops down or a bigger fish comes swimming down the river, uh, if there's 50 other little salmon there, chances of you being the one that gets eaten uh, is a little bit lower. And so I think there was a, a, a relationship between, like we expected, the group size and uh, the amount of, of sort of foraging opportunity that was going on with each of the individual fish. And that kind of changed um, as they were uh, in position within the school. So the more aggressive fish that were towards the front of the school were getting sort of the pick of the litter as the, the food was drifting downstream. So it sort of paid to be a little bit more aggressive to get to the prime feeding spot than it did to be in the back. Um so it was it was a great great first experience in the field. Um, everyone loves to, you know, be out actually, you know, not behind a desk or a computer. And um, it was really really nice to get that first experience. And um, you know, got to work with a guy that ended up being a, a really good friend of mine. He attended my wedding uh, a year and a half ago, and we still stay in touch. And that's always great. talking about fish. So, well, that first experience, you're kind of talking about how it was your first time in the field, you know, doing things involving fish and things like that. Did that just like confirm for you, like you made the right decision with your career and, you know, full steam ahead kind of thing? Yeah. So I, I, I never, I, I came to, came to college or university with the idea that I wanted to be a fish biologist. I didn't necessarily know what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, my, I, I grew up in Madison, but my, uh, great grandma 
and uh well she she lived on a lake in northern wisconsin about uh half hour or so north of hayward and so it was about a probably about five hour drive from from uh our house in madison to get up there but we uh my dad and grandpa loved fishing and they uh took us fishing every chance that they had and uh yeah we we went on plenty of vacations but uh whenever we we got the chance we were up there um fishing fishing for bass fishing for bluegill fishing for northern pike chasing musky um you name it and that i just they're pulling me off the water you know when it was getting too dark to to see our baits in the water and so um i knew that i wanted to do something in biology and if it was with fish that was awesome and uh yeah that, that first experience in the field was great but i it was sort of cemented in my head before that and um after after undergrad i went right into uh, graduate school at another wisconsin school university of wisconsin stevens point which um if you work in natural resources that's uh one of one of the prime uh schools in the nation as far as you know learning and educating uh new folks or new students about natural resource management fisheries wildlife forestry all of that those type of fields and so i was fortunate enough to get a an opportunity to work with uh Dr. Mike Hansen, who was there at the time, he's now retired, but um, yeah, he just uh, took a shot and emailed him and see if he had any any uh, research projects that were available. And he happened to have one working with uh, musky population dynamics. And this was not a field job or not a field uh, research position. It was lots of time in the lab and behind a desk and fiddling around on a computer but uh wouldn't wouldn't trade it for for anything else and a lot of the um progress that i've made in my career can be tied to my time at stevens point and working with mike and uh learning learning from a a really really good advisor so is that kind of like uh just kind of like paying your dues is that kind of like what a lot of folks in your field kind of have to start doing where they get a project like that where they ask someone um like a professor like you know dr mike hansen or something like that to kind of get their you know their feet wet it's so um maybe initially for an undergraduate um it's it definitely helps um to get a experience talks or experience speaks and so um you if you're interested in fisheries and, and you can you can get experience whether it's working with um, graduate students or professors at your college that are doing fishy type stuff um, you, a lot of state agencies will hire like summer help where it's um, either designed for kids that are still in school or recent graduates so maybe they're you know a four-month position from May to September or something like that or um, my job now it's it's um it's usually like may until november ish so okay um but yeah and for the masters that's that's a, a sort of the requirement now for a lot of entry-level fisheries biologist positions within the state or even um some of the federal government position positions require that as well and so that's a two to three year um graduate project where it for me it was a lot of taking additional classes because I came from um, a university that had some fish classes, but not a whole lot of fish management classes. And so I basically got a entirely new education 
um, about fish and fish populations and everything that goes into being a fish biologist there and the the project that you have associated with that is uh, to really you can take classes all day long but you really where you learn is by doing um, at least that's how it works with me and so the graduate research really forces you to take what you're learning in class and kind of think on your own and the advisor is always there to help you when you get into pickle which you inevitably do but uh, okay yeah and so that uh, that's where you really hone your skills that make you stand out on the job market and uh yeah so is it pretty competitive um it, it can be um a piece of advice that i was always told um when i was you know getting advice from my undergrad advisor and then um in grad school and talking with other folks that were maybe a little bit older or further along in the process than i was at the time is that you know everyone wants to be a fish biologist where they where they grew up and but if you know i'm not going to say that that never happens but uh a lot of the times folks bounce around for a few years before that that sort of dream position opens up and they're able to not only um you know have the the education but also the experience to you know be competitive for it so yeah there we get we get a decent amount of of um undergraduates that apply for our positions and Whenever there's a, a, a open full-time biologist position, I, whether it's at the state or or the federal level, I suspect there's a, a fair bit of competition for that. So, what is your dream position if you were to chalk it up right now? Uh, this is going to be a corny answer, but I I didn't know that I was in my dream position until I was here. All um, right. If you uh, if you would have asked me that question ten years ago when I was trying to wrap up my master's degree, I would have never said working in Ohio, um, <laughs> let alone Northern Ohio, but, uh, working, working on Lake Erie has been, uh, it's been awesome. Um, part of that is I work with a great group of people within the division of wildlife, but it's also, uh, a really, really unique, um, it's a unique resource. I mean, anytime that you get to work on the great lakes is, is awesome. But, um, you know, if, if I say if I were working in in inland Ohio or Michigan or Wisconsin, those present different challenges than what I have to deal with. Um, but one of the things that's different about being on Lake Erie is that um, because there are other states in the province of Ontario that border it, um, all of that management or the the strategies that go into managing the fish populations on Lake Erie and the, their associated fisheries is all done through uh, an interjurisdictional framework. And so what that means is that um, although each of them can make their own decisions, uh, everything is done sort of consensus-based. And so, uh, for example, when it comes time in the spring to determine what the, the uh, it's called the total allowable catch, so you can think of it as like a, a harvest quota okay. for walleye and yellow perch, when those decisions are being made, um, all of the sort of senior level, um, fish biologists or the, the fisheries managers are sitting around a table and they've got all of the information that myself and the other fisheries biologists from around the lake, um, provide to them. They've asked us questions and usually there's a fair bit of 
wrestling that goes goes along uh, among us as we you know develop our own consensus and you know analyze the data each year. But uh, it's it's really really fun to work with the folks from from Canada, from Michigan, from Pennsylvania, New York, um, the other folks that I work with in Ohio. It's uh, you get you get to build relationships with these people, and we don't always see see eye to eye. But at the end of the day, everyone has the best interests um, for the natural resource in mind, and it's it's just fun. Uh, I've only been here. Uh, it'll be seven years next April, uh, and there's folks that have been in in these positions for thirty plus years, and it's just fun to to build relationships with everyone. And a lot of them, I I can call my friends now, and you know, if I have a question about. I don't know. Uh, going going musky fishing in Michigan, I have folks that I can rely on to point me in the right direction. Right. Or you know, when I'm banging my head against the wall with uh, some sort of analysis that I'm working on for whether it's uh, you know something for our annual status report, or I, I can't get a piece of computer code to work, you have that, and it's just it's fun to to build those relationships and. Uh, work through work through managing a, a really big and important resource uh, on Lake Erie. No, that's good to hear. I, I always wondered that how that worked, you know, if, if Canada just kind of took their data and, you know, set their, their harvest limits the way that they wanted to based off of that, you know, their data without, you know, ever seeing our data over here in, in the United States between, you know, Michigan, Ohio, New York. And uh, that's good to hear. So everyone kind of walks away from the table happy but yeah but 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 it took a little uh negotiating and or wrestling like you said to get there yep yeah usually usually everyone's able to hug it out after uh after the the negotiations but yeah everyone everyone it's it's a long drawn out process that everyone thinks that the fall and winter is maybe the the time of of the year where um you know we're able to catch our breath and relax a little bit but really the the winter is when we all of the data and the you know the, whether it's the creels creel information so if you come off one of the the launches on lake erie and someone uh, is asking you how your fishing trip went that's to allow us to directly estimate you know walleye and yellow perch and like, all of the other um sports statistics per harvest and effort throughout the year that goes into directly estimating and not only how many fish are likely out in the lake, but then that trickles up to the those, those discussions about the the harvest quotas and things like that. And so we're we're in the middle of of wrapping up our our um, really dedicated fishery surveys and stuff that goes into directly feeding feeding the the beast for estimating the population abundance and setting the tax and stuff. Um, but it's, you know, once all that data are collected, then you have to go through it and make sure there's no errors in it and do all the QA, QC stuff that's necessary. And then in usually in, uh, late January, early February, each of those, the States and Ontario will share their, their data with the other jurisdictions. Okay. And so, so then those biologists that are sort of in my chair sit down and we, update all of our, um, there's annual reports. So within, within Lake Erie, there's, um, sort of those senior level biologists that I was talking about that are 
doing the actual uh, discussions about what the total allowable catch should be in any given year. Mm-hmm. Um, that's they're members of what's called the Lake Erie Committee, and that's facilitated by the Great Lakes Fishery Commission, which is a, a non-governmental uh, international organization that helps to manage the fisheries management. They sort of facilitate a lot of the the work that the individual agencies do across the Great Lakes. Um, and then below the Lake Erie Committee, on there's several task groups. And so for each of the, um, the heavily exploited uh, or quota managed species, so walleye and yellow perch, they each get their own task group. There's a task group focused on management of the cold water fishes. So um, they're primarily worried about uh, rehabilitation of, of restoration of species like lake trout in the eastern basin. Mm-hmm. There's a forage task group which deals with things like emerald smelt or emerald smelt, emerald shiner, rainbow smelt, um, other things that uh, are sort of keeping the machinery going for, for the walleye and the yellow perch. There's a few other ones that I'm forgetting right now, but uh, yeah, those the, the biologists that are part of those task groups all sit down um, at the start of each year and they're the ones that uh, update the various assessment models and um, are generating the sort of recommendations to the Lake Erie committee. And then they sort of discuss amongst themselves. So uh, that's, that's what we're doing um, during the winter and spring when it's cold and we can't, can't necessarily get out on the lake. And so we're, we're busy during that time of year. Okay. I was uh, getting kind of just why you were touching on it a little bit with the emerald shiners and you said rainbow smelt. Is that right? How, yeah. how has the introduction of, or the, you know, this species showing up, meaning goby affected the feeding habits of the walleye, whether in a, in, in your opinion, in a, in a negative and or positive way. So it's, it's definitely a negative that, that any, uh, non-native species, uh, gets, gets introduced, um, you know, by accident. So the round gobies came in uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago. I forget exactly how long it was. Um, and like a lot of the, the invasive species, probably it took a while for them to really get a foothold, but then their population really boomed. And then it kind of came back down to earth and settled into, you know, what is, you know, maybe a normal population density for them, at least in the Great Lakes. And it seems like um, the gobies, everyone likes to eat them. Um, I think it for something like walleye, um, it may be a little bit more seasonal. Um, we do a little bit of diet work with walleye, and the, the diet work that we do is primarily in the fall. And so the one of the surveys that I'm in charge of is our, our fall gillnet survey. And when we catch those walleye and bring them back to, to our lab, um, we work them up, take length, weight, that type of information, but we're also cutting them open to see what they're eating. Mm-hmm. And at least in the fall, um, I would say probably 90% of what we see in their, in their bellies is our gizzard shad. So in general, uh, while I like to eat things that don't have spines and gizzard shad are like a swimming sausage, they're big, greasy and 
easy to easy to hork down uh, in in large numbers. But for for do, other, do you think that just that, because they're putting on the feedback before winter or what? I think so. Yeah, uh, and there's there's generally a whole lot of gizzard shad available to them at this time of year. Okay. Um, they, I mean, we we still see the the occasional emerald shiner in their stomachs as well. Um, but I know I know that there was sort of that initial sort of invasion phase when the gobies were showing up, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like if you were to go to you know, China or Europe or something, and you're going to see all this food that you don't know is really good. And then you slowly start trying it and you're like, Oh, this is, this is not bad. And so that was sort of what happens when there's a new, new resource that can be exploited by the, the native fish. And so, um, I'm, I'm not aware. I'm sure someone has done the, the, some studies to really look at the, like how, how nutritious the goby are for the walleye and or for other fish. Um, I know that the they've looked at um, how the goby have impacted uh, smallmouth. So smallmouth, when they build their nests, is if the the male fish gets pulled off of the nest, the gobies will just descend on it and gobble up the eggs. Okay. Um, but the the flip side of that is. You know, if a bass wants to eat a goby, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort for it to go around. It's just like popping popcorn in your mouth. You can you can uh, eat a eat a whole bunch of gobies. And so I know that there's been some work looking at long term changes in like the condition, so how plump or fat the fish are for their size pre and post um, goby invasion. I think the bass are doing all right. They've they've definitely been able to exploit that um i think other fish species like i i know that the walleye will eat them um i when i think of walleye i tend to think of them as more of a a open water predator Mm -hmm. not necessarily cruising around digging on the bottom um but i know other other species like lake trout they will definitely exploit the the gobies um i do think i was talking with uh, one of the biologists down in new york think it was either last year that they were seeing uh, almost every fish that they were looking at or not maybe not every fish but a lot of the fish that they were looking at uh, for diets uh, it was a lot of gobies and then this year it seems like it's all back to rainbow smelt uh, or gizzard chat or you know sort of back to more of what you'd expect you think that's so just due because to the to the stabilization of the goby population, like you said earlier, how it, it's kind of back to normal levels where they weren't just everywhere. Yeah, I mean the the stabilizations uh, that I was alluding to that would that would sort of take place over a little bit longer time frame. I think the stuff that you're seeing now is maybe just sort of year to year variation, and okay, there's there was something different last year that you know maybe there was a huge huge excuse me a huge boom of of gobies. Um, where they were, you know, taking their diets and stuff. And, uh, I'm not sure, but it's, it's, I think at this point the gobies are here and they're, they're sort of, um, they're not in a state of flux. And so it's just sort of, uh, last year was maybe the, the, uh, exception rather than the rule. Right. So, so the fish in the, in Lake Erie for the most part are, are learning to live with them. Like you said, any invasive species is not good for – you don't want an invasive species in the lake, obviously, but everyone's adapting to it. You know, mm-hmm. 
the small mouth are getting fat protecting their nest from just inhaling them and uh so it's not it's not just it's not harming the population of the walleye in any way yeah i'm i'm sure they're they're harming them in some way but uh yeah they're they certainly have adapted to it um they're they're uh Gobies, gobies are able to, they're one of the few fish in the lake that will also eat the zebra and dreisinid mussels, which are another invasive species, which is definitely having an impact on the walleye by um, the way that they're, they're, they filter the water uh, and they're removing a lot of nutrients that were, you know, typically available to, like to zooplankton and other, the real small building blocks uh, mm-hmm. to the food chain within the lake. And as they're filtering and, um, you know, they're obviously benthic, they're, they're mussels. Um, so they're on the bottom of the lake. And as they're filtering, 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 they're they're pulling a lot of those nutrients down and sort of uh, keeping it to themselves on the bottom of the lake. And when the gobies are able to go down and eat some of those smaller mussels, and then as the other bigger fish eat the goby, they're able to take some of those nutrients that used to be, you know, available for all in the water column. And then, you know, as the bass or walleye or lake trout eat them, sort of not restoring the the sort of energy link, but it's at least making use of, you know, kind of a crappy situation, if that makes sense. No, it does, but I'm I'm kind of rooting for the gobies now because I think I hate zebra mussels more than the gobies. Yeah. Yeah, I guess if you ask me, I would probably say the same thing, but it's it's hard to root for any invasive species. Yeah, well, I guess if we're if we're stuck, yeah, with if you them. have to, yeah, if you have to pick one bad one, yeah, pick the lesser of the two evils. So, kind of get into that a little bit. So, this is something a, a listener had typed in or e- emailed in about. You know, b- back when we were kids, you always hear stories. I grew up down here. Um, uh, in the, uh, the Monroe Dundee kind of Carlton area, which mm-hmm. Lake Erie was only, you know, a few miles from us and I grew up fishing on it and things like that. Um, it seems like the lake is becoming more and more clear. Water mm-hmm. clarity is improving. Um, I don't know if that's like you were alluding to a good thing. Um, obviously Erie, um, if you can kind of just talk about maybe just a brief history of it. Was it more murky and dirtier back in the day? Um, obviously I, I would think the water, uh, pollutant I would hope would ha- has been going down, um, just from regulations and things like that, that the EPA has, you know, put on a lot of factories and all that kind of stuff surrounding Lake Erie. But from a standpoint of how that affects the, the walleye, um, Back in the day, you always heard about how you know murky and dirty uh, Lake Erie was. Was that its more natural way of being, or is that something that humans kind of made happen? So, so I'm gonna put a plug in for uh, a really, really good book. Uh, so, there's the book title is called "The Death and Life of the Great Lakes." Okay. The author is Dan Egan. Um, I won't get any endorsement for plugging this book, but it's, it's, if you're interested in the great lakes and fishing and sort of everything that you just asked, um, I really encourage folks to, to pick it up from a library or, or, you know, go down to their bookstore or go to Amazon. It's prime day to day. You could probably find it on there too. But, uh, the, the author of that book does a great job of kind of going around to 
the various Great Lakes and touching on um, everything from sort of how they were to how we changed them, um, you know, the last century and how the invasive species have really brought them to where we are now. And so the way I understand it with the, the sort of increasing water clarity and so Lake Erie is probably always a little bit uh, murky, turbid, um, mucky, because we know it's a really productive lake and it's, it's probably always been a very productive lake relative to the other lakes. Um, but um, on Lake Erie, and this is going on, I think, on all of the other four Great Lakes, I mentioned those zebra and dreisinid mussels. Mm-hmm. Those get in there and they, they just filter so much water and they're, um, there's so many of them that um, as they're filtering the water and pulling all of those nutrients and stuff down, um, it's a natural – because of what they're doing, the water becomes clear and okay. it looks cleaner. But it's it's really – it might look clean, but it's like biologically contaminated. And so that that has trickle down implications for um, you know in the spring when the zooplankton hatch and you know they they start going through their annual cycles and the water is clearer so maybe it warms up a little bit quicker and they get going sooner and then you have you know sort of the there's the idea of what makes a good hatch and there's, it's called the match mismatch hypothesis so if the walleye spawn and the baby walleye are out looking around for food there's nothing for them to eat well that's a mismatch but if it's a match they hatch and there's plenty of zooplankton and other things for them to eat uh that match helps them get off to a good start they can grow and if they get off to a good start growing you know maybe they're reach a big enough size that they're gonna you know have an increased chance of living through the summer and fall and winter and carries through and the addition of of the zebra zebra and, and so i keep calling them as i was saying zebra and dreisinid mussels they're dreisinid mussels as a whole it's zebra and quagga mussels those are the two species okay of of uh invasive mussels we wouldn't know the difference don't worry yeah i'm sure there'll be some fish <laughs> biologists laughing at me talking about this but uh i don't think there's too many to listen more more yeah. more of the everyday angler here on the on the podcast sure but uh, yeah, as as they as as those got established, um, and those those are probably not going anywhere. But um, yeah, part of part of the the consequence of of those invasive species coming into the lake is that the lakes become clearer. Okay. And then when you layer on things like, you know, the we talk about the reutrophication of Lake Erie. So back in the '60s and '70s, when pre-EPA days when the water quality was really bad because yeah. the pollution getting dumped into the lake and you had rivers catching on fire. Everyone knows those stories. Um, as the At that time, there, there were bad algal blooms and water quality was generally poor. But then as the um, Great Lakes Water Quality Act kicked in and had EPA and on Canada, on the Canadian side, Environment Canada, created and started addressing some of those problems with the pollution sources, the lake became back to what, I guess, more normal. Um, And then that was going on for the 70s, 80s, through the 90s. And then you have the, those muscles arrive, I think in the late 80s, early 90s, 
and then they're spreading throughout the 90s and by the 2000s they're pretty well established and at that same time at least on lake Erie, you start to see the increasing um phosphorus loads so the the nutrients that are fueling those algal blooms that we hear about on an almost annual basis now during the summer and part of what makes those algal blooms um not going to say that the only reason they're going on is because of those those muscles but you know maybe the reason they're as bad or they're the muscles with the water clarity there's enough sunlight that penetrates further down and there's plenty of of um, food for the, the algae to get going. And so then that gets going. And then that definitely, uh, we don't know if it's impacting the, the walleye population or, or yellow perch or anything like that, but they certainly have to contend with it, uh, at least in the Western basin. And then as that algae, uh, drifts into the Western and central basin and dies and settles down, as that starts to break down, that's when you start to have uh, low dissolved oxygen towards the bottom of the lake. Okay. And this is something that's probably always been there. Um, but as those al- algal blooms have gotten worse and worse over the last decade, 15 years or so, um, maybe the the size or the, the extent of it, you know, going later into the season becomes more problematic. And that's part of what we think is potentially going on with some of the yellow perch right now with um, folks of the, the yellow perch population has been uh, struggling a little bit in, in the central basin. Um, hasn't had a great, great year class in a few years and um, folks have been struggling to catch the, the adult fish. And part of the, part of what we think is that, you know, if there's low oxygen on the bottom, perch tend to, be bottom oriented if there's no or very little oxygen for them to breathe and it pushes them up into the into the water column they've got to go around and uh try to find water where it's easier for them to breathe or yeah better better conditions for them to forage or that was sort of a long winding answer for your question no uh, no that's the kind of stuff i want to hear i want that is going to help set the stage for what i'm going to hit you with next so, you know, everybody knows that Erie's this, this you know, it's been deal, deemed the walleye capital of the world, this walleye factory, <clears throat> all this all, all this great stuff you hear about Erie. Even everybody from out of state, um, you know, if they're, if they're coming for a fishing destination and they're big walleye, you know, anglers, guys and gals, always talk about making a trip to Erie because it's, you know, you, you can catch the fish of a lifetime there and the, the, the numbers are high. So I guess my question to you, if I'm going to hit you with it, is how is this, we hear about how the, the fish classes are doing so well over recent years, and then, but at the same time, when we're getting into what you're telling me biologically, and you know, the, the environment that the walleye are living in, this clarity in, in the zebra mussels and things like that are going to you know, could have an effect on them. Why is the population still doing so well, or is it still doing as well as everyone perceives it to be? Man, if, if I had the answer for that, um, there's, it's, it's a great question. And it's, it's something that, that I've definitely thought about more and more, um, as I've, as I've been on the lake, um, you know, I'm still green comparatively to, to some folks, but I've, 
been here long enough to, to see some of the stuff where it, I, I was around when it started um, throwing off these larger year classes that folks are, you know, when you hear about the great fishing that's going on now, these are the 2015 year class and more recently the, the 2018 as those fish are growing in. And when, you know, all of those things that I just described, the, the invasive species, the gobies are probably unique to, to Lake Erie um, compared to, you know, inland lakes in northern Wisconsin or Minnesota. Um, but there, there are folks within the Wisconsin DNR, or the Michigan DNR, or the yeah, Michigan DNR too, but um, folks, folks in Wisconsin and Minnesota, and particularly in Minnesota that are really wrestling with these questions because they have, they got the same sort of cocktail of invasive species that we have on Lake Erie. And it seems like, excuse me, their populations are maybe struggling a little bit, a little bit more than what Lake Erie's are. Yeah. You always hear about Mille Lacs going up and down and the debates with Mille Lacs and things like that. Yep. Yeah. So there's, there's been some studies. Um, I haven't read them recently, so don't quote me on them, but the, there's there's when when you get the the quagga mussels and in, in the, or the the mussels in there and there's also another uh it's an invasive zooplankton called bithotrephes it's a spiny water flea and when you get those um in in the lakes it tends to lead to declines in growth and when you don't get as big it means you're you know maybe not producing as many eggs or the eggs that you produce aren't as good um, and it just leads to a whole bunch of things that, you know, aren't great for a walleye population. Okay. And I, I wonder about that because, you know, you're sort of generally aware of all of the, these other studies pointing to, you know, things shouldn't be as good as what they are. Um, but it just goes back to, you know, it just seems like Lake Erie is certainly helps that uh, we're getting all of the excess nutrient uh loading from like for example the mommy river um you know sort of fueling those algal blooms but that's also fueling growth for you know other other zooplankton and uh translates up into fish and even if you were to remove that there's still there's there's a saying that lake erie has like 10 percent of the water and 90 percent of of the fish mm -hmm. in the great lakes mm -hmm. and that would hold true you know, going back through the years and Lake Erie just, if, if the walleye can't find what they, what they would prefer to eat, well, then they just switch to gizzard shad or emerald shiner or rainbow smelt or, you know, whole host of other fish that are available for them. And so they're, they just seem to be doing okay. I think that, uh, the other, the other thing that folks ask about is, you know, are they are the walleye eating the yellow perch out of house and home, or you know, are there are the, are there going to be so many walleye in the lake that you know the the walleye, um, you know their their condition starts to suffer. So when they when they were 15 inches, you know, 10 years ago they were you know this this many pounds, but now this fish of the same size is you know a little bit smaller. Um, we're seeing some of that but that's also something that's not totally unexpected there's there's this idea of of density dependence so that things things can't just always go up and up and up and up without consequences eventually you're going to start to see when there's you know 
10 million fish in a lake the size of Lake Erie, they're not really going to be, you know, bumping fins with, with their brothers and sisters at the dinner table. But when there's a hundred million of them or 120 million, or I, I forget what the population size was for, for the estimate from this year. But as you get more and more mouths to feed, you're, you're going to see that competition, but that's, it's not something that, you know, fish biologists are surprised at um it's something it's 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 natural it's it's totally natural for the populations to go up and down and they're just naturally variable but uh yeah that was one of my questions because you know you always hear about the debates up at like in for instance saginaw bay and lake huron you know the the argument there was they, they they had you know the the size of the walleye that you could keep they changed um because they thought it was having an impact on the perch population. Now I know it's, it's a different lake and all that kind of stuff, but you know, they changed the, the amount of fish that you could keep. And they also changed the size of the fish, meaning walleye that you could start harvesting as well. I think they dropped it down to 13 inches. And is that something that, you know, that, that ideas like that get tossed around if the population were to get too high in Lake Erie and would that have any benefits? Um, it's certainly something that we hear from, from our stakeholders. Um, I can't speak for, for the other jurisdictions around the lake, sure. but, um, it's, it's certainly something that, that we get asked. Um, I mean, are you, you know, I mean, have you heard of, I mean, were you familiar with that situation that I just talked about on Saginaw Bay? Vaguely. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. A, a little bit. Um, I mean, that's just hearsay too about, you know, the, I mean, I, I think it was a guess too by the Michigan DNR on whether that would affect the help bring back the perch populations that they, they, they've been wanting to see and they've seen in the past, but there's, yeah. a, but there's also, you know, is it, is it too many nets out there that are, you know, gill netting the, you know, the perch and things like that. There's a whole, that's a whole nother issue, but sure. Th- that's why I, I, I you were bringing, up, yeah. you know, if, if the walleye were affecting the perch population, um, it, yeah. if, and, if in the future you guys have had discussions talking about maybe changing the slot limits or the size of the walleye that you would harvest to help control the population. Yeah. We, I mean, we get, we get questions like that. Um, it's n- not always directly tied to, to, you know, helping a perch population out, for example, um, a few years ago when, when the population, it was before the the really big year class from 2015 had um, really entered the fishery. So in Ohio, we have a 15 inch minimum size limit before you can harvest the walleye. And in so those the 2015 year class would have been a year old. So in 2016 and a little bit into 2017, uh, those fish were obviously under 15 inches, and so folks were going out. Uh, fishing for perch for walleye and they're just catching way like they're just catching tons of shorts and because of that they were they wanted a little bit lower uh size limit so that was uh a suggestion that we heard recently with that and um yeah we're we're hearing about you know requests for increasing the bag limit um with in, in combination with a really, really high walleye population and uh, declining yellow perch populations, and you know, I, I don't, I don't want folks to get the impression that um, the walleye aren't having 
an impact on on the yellow perch um you know while i certainly will eat yellow perch um just like they'll eat you know when they reach a certain size they'll eat whatever they want sure yeah they're opportunistic fish yeah but it's there's just there's there's no there's no silver bullet when it comes to any of that um and that you know if it if it were to get to a certain point um you know the changing something like a bag limit or a size limit that's something tangible that if it if if the managers um were to feel that that the population was going in a direction that they didn't like or that they thought it really was having a really uh, a, it was heading in a direction that we didn't want it to go those would be the management levers that we could pull to try to rein back in for example the walleye population um but i think right now what we have is it's a at least in the in the central basin it's a recruitment problem and unfortunately we don't have a management lever that we can pull to to fix that that's those are things that are driven by you know what are what is the the condition like in the winter do they do the female perch get enough cold weather days that their eggs really develop and and are as big and nutritious as they can be for for the baby perch or the same would go for the walleye you can imagine the scenario to flip you know maybe in the not too distant future as um you know seems like the walleye can do no wrong but what happens if the the recruitment were to turn off for a few years and the population that's up in the stratosphere now kind of comes back down to earth yeah and that's that's sort of where we were you know 10 years ago before the, the recruitment really kicked in. And so those, I mean, those are, those are all things that, you know, we're aware of we, we could do if needed. Um, but it, uh, it's, it's not something that's, uh, I think being actively discussed at the moment. How now, again, getting back to Erie is different than most bodies of water, especially when it comes to walleye. How long does it take for, a fish class to get to that legal 15 inches? So normally it's about, uh, two years between two and three years. Um, it, when we see these really, really big year classes, like we have moving through the system right now, Mm -hmm. um, fish growth is always super variable. Um, but it seems like when you have these really big year classes, there's fish that are probably pushing 15 inches by the time they're, you know, two years old in May, Damn. where other cases it might be, they might not be pushing 15 inches when they're three year old, three years old. Um, you know, in July or something of that, like that of their third year. Um, but on average, it's it's two to two and a half years um, for the walleye to reach that that 15 inch. Usually by the end of their second year, like in August September they're starting to grow into that 15 inch size class. Um, and definitely by the end of their third year, um, most, most of those fish from a given year class are going to be, uh, entering into that harvestable size. So if I catch a fish next, let's say next summer, it's 15, 16 inches, somewhere in there. That's probably from the 2018 class. Probably. Okay. Now comparable to other inland lakes, Erie is it is it safe to say that the Erie fry grow at a faster rate when you compare it to other bodies of water? 
you know, I probably should know that, but I am so focused on. Uh, no, that's fine. <laughs> like, like, no, that's fine. That's just uh, something that pops in my brain. That that's why I ask it. And the yeah, re- the other reason why I mean too is, I used to live in Traverse City, which is completely opposite corner of the lower you know lower part of Michigan. Yep. And I can say for a fact that the walleye up there in the inland lakes and some of the bodies of water up there grow extremely slower compared to. I mean, it's tough to compare it to Erie. I hate to compare everything to Erie, but it's just what I do. Um, you know, I would think those class up there, the walleye up there are a lot smaller and grow at a much slower rate just from what I have seen. I'm not saying I have any kind of science or explanation behind that, but I'm happy when I come down here in Lake Erie and I see the numbers that I see and the, the, the catches that we, that we, you know, harvest you know, from an angler standpoint, I'm extremely happy with what's going on in Erie. But, you know, from kind of like from what I'm gathering from you is we don't know how far along or sustainable this this will be. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think you have I don't think you have to worry about uh, the the walleye going away on Lake Erie anytime soon. But right. uh, folks, folks always say you know, lovingly that back in the eighties, those were sort of, sort of the golden years of walleye fishing on Lake Erie and given the catch rates or the, not even catch rates, the harvest rates. So the number of legal sized walleye that are harvested per hour right now on the lake are, if not the highest near the highest that we've ever seen. And we have, we have data for this going back to, the late 70s so when the walleye were really kind of rebounding from uh, a population collapse and so uh, I would argue that we're if, if we aren't already there we're certainly coming close to uh, another golden period of, of walleye fishing on the lake um, yeah I hope I never yeah. have to say in my lifetime man back in 2015 to 2025 that was the heyday you know it, hey, it, <laughs> i don't it, ever want to say that <laughs> it happens i mean folks folks are getting so used to to going out and and whacking and stacking their limit of fish yeah in a relatively short time that you know it it might even be as the as the fish kind of mature um you know the the younger fish so the two to four year old fish um they're those are the ones that are tending to hang around in the Western basin. And that's where a lot of the angling effort occurs. Um, and those folks, you know, as they, as those walleye mature, uh, they're going to tend to spend more time in the, the central or Eastern parts of the lake. And so you could see, I, I could envision a sort of shift in, uh, where the, the really big catch rates are, the really high catch rates are. And I think we're even starting to see some of that now that, uh, we're seeing some pretty high catch rates uh, in the central basin. I th- think it was last year. Um, COVID got us this year, so I don't know that we'll be able to make that claim this year. But uh, <laughs> it got us all. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, d- I mean, before I moved up to Traverse, I was down actually in the Perrysburg area in Toledo, kind of on the outskirts of Toledo. And I'm not sure if you were around. Maybe this might have been before your time down here or maybe right around the time you did arrive here, but Erie froze over for two years in a two hard winters in a row. 
Um, yeah, this was like in thirteen, fourteen, and fourteen, fifteen. Yeah, so my buddy and I had, you know, heard about this the first year it was going on, and we were actually probably, I don't know, one of the first. I, I would say one of the, I wouldn't say the pioneers, but we were there in the beginning before it, it really caught fire and everyone heard out about it. And we mm-hmm. we had ventured out, you know, a few miles out towards heading towards the islands out there, and man, like. Like when you fish for when you fish on Erie, obviously you can see the fish on your fish finder in the summertime, in the spring, in the fall when you're trolling or casting, jigging, doing whatever you're doing. But it, when you're there on the ice and you drop your camera down there and you see mm-hmm. the pure size of the the fish and the females making their way back west to kind of do that migration towards the rivers, kind of you know to be there in time for the March April runs. Those fish. The, that's the biggest walleye I've ever seen on camera. Some of the ones that would swim by and not hit our bait, but we did well, but I was just, you know, to see them underwater in their natural element and have that camera on them. It was so shocking to me and, you know, it really hit home of like what a special place this is for walleye. Yeah, there's, there's definitely some big fish out there. Uh, a few years ago, there was a guy that was uh, an angler that was fishing um, from shore in the fall. So uh, around this time of year, each year, as the fish are starting to make their way back, and like I, we talked about earlier, strapping the feed bag on to really get fat and plump for winter, Yeah, um, the shore fishing really heats up. And uh, this guy had caught, unfortunately he wasn't signed up for the fall brawl. Otherwise he probably would have won a bunch of money or a really nice boat. <laughs> but in the same night he had caught a 15 pound walleye and he had also caught one of our, uh, acoustically tagged walleye. So he did get a little bit of money for calling and reporting and harvesting the, the tagged fish. But a uh, hundred dollars is certainly a whole lot less than you know. I don't know if it was fifty thousand dollars that back then, but there's there's big fish out there, and there's there's still big fish out there right now because the to get to earlier you're asking how long it takes to get to the fifteen inches. The other the flip side that folks were always interested in is how long does it take them to reach you know those those really really big sizes you know ten plus pounds or or even larger. Like how big does it take to to grow a state record sized fish? Um, and they're out there right now. There's the prior to 2014, 2015, or even a couple of years ago with those really really big hatches. 2003, um, it, it it was the record for the largest uh, year class or largest hatch um, up until I think 2018 or 2019. And those fish usually. 10, 12 years, uh, that's when they're getting into those 30 plus inches and, and big bellied females, um, in the spring. And there were, you know, those, those years when, uh, the lake froze over and folks were able to get out and ice fish. I'm sure there were some really, really big fish caught. You yeah. saw some of them and, and sort of heard reports of other ones, but yeah, there, there are some nice, healthy fish being caught. Yeah. It was, again, I was, I felt super fortunate to be i mean i i can't say i I hope that Erie will freeze again and we'll have the opportunity to kind of chase fish on the ice out there it's a special thing to do but man like you just don't realize how lucky you are until you kind of reflect back afterwards and you're just like wow there was we saw we saw some big fish out there and you know this this lake is a 
producing some monsters. Do you guys, yeah. do you guys, um, like when the fall brawl is going on and things like that, are you guys there to kind of see what gets brought in? Are you helping at all with all that kind of stuff or no? We, we aren't directly, I mean, we're, I think a lot of us are, uh, a lot of us are, are fishing in on a, fishing in it during our own time. Right. But we're also, also checking the leaderboard and following along. Um, I, I follow along just to see the, the size of the fish being caught and stuff like that. Um, a few years ago, a fun story that just happened during the fall brawl. Uh, the gentleman, I forget his name, was fishing out of Lorraine. He was trolling and he happened to catch a what was a state record lake trout at the time. It mm-hmm. still is a state state record lake trout, but he brought it to, um, I forget where the weigh-in site is for the fall brawl, but he brought that there and um, myself and some of the other folks from our office went down and did our part and verified that it was in fact a lake trout as part of the, the certification process. So that was fun and got to see a really big fish as well, so... Yeah, uh, and folks listening to this, you mean state record for Ohio, right? Yeah, sorry, for Ohio. Okay. We've got a lot of Michiganders listening to this, so they'd be curious and their ears perk up if a state record was caught in Erie. That'd be... Yeah, no. Big big lake trout on Lake Erie is really not that big for folks that fish for them up in Lake Michigan or Lake... Yeah, Yeah. yeah, you guys have all the great lakes. Yeah, it gets a little wild up north. Um. So you fish yourself then for walleye out on for recreationally? Uh, less so walleye. Um, I grew up uh, fishing the smaller lakes in northern Wisconsin, so I'm a I'm a bass angler at heart. Um, do some of that. I've I've actually gotten into cat fishing on Lake Erie. Um, we've we've through our sampling and stuff like that. We've we've seen handled some really really large flathead catfish. Unfortunately, we. Uh, have yet to put one in the boat with hook and line, but uh, we know there are some monsters in some of the rivers around here. And um, also, each summer, some buddies and I go back to uh, whether it's northern Wisconsin or Minnesota, or uh, it's my turn for them to drive here this year. Uh, Lake St. Clair for muskies. There you go. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, love to love to fish and. Uh, try to get my wife into fishing as well she likes to pick up the the push button zebco when we're back on our cabin in, in wisconsin and throw spinner baits for bass and and uh pike and stuff like that so there you go man get back yeah. home and uh, kind of get away from the big water a little bit i'm sure it's uh as much as you like the big water in the area it's probably cool to go back to the you know smaller inland lakes yep yeah all all of the lakes are cool for different reasons and yeah it's always nice to get back home and see uh see what you grew up fishing and biggest biggest bass that i've ever caught you know to this day is from a, a small lake in northern wisconsin so yeah that's usually how it goes those small lakes just accessible by canoes or something like that not a lot of pressure and you you pull out the big girls then yep um all right we'll just kind of winding down a little bit here and closing it out so if i'm if i'm reading you right for the foreseeable future the outlook is still pretty bright on erie yeah. Yep. Okay. And yep. Then, it's uh. Oh, go ahead. No, absolutely. Go ahead. You go ahead. I was just gonna say, yeah, the the future is definitely definitely bright for walleye. There's the the fish that folks were were catching as those 15 inchers, you know, back in 2017 from the 
2014 and 2015 hatches those fish are probably 18 to 24 inches at this point and they're they're uh still out there in pretty good numbers and we've also got a few other really big year classes that have uh, followed in the heels so the 2018 and then uh, the 2019 hatch so the 2008 fish are definitely going to be growing into the 15 inch size uh 2019 probably some of them that, are that size already uh, but most of those fish are are uh not quite harvestable yet but coming into next year um look for it to continue those three baits that you were talking about earlier the, the emerald shiners the rainbow smelt and the gobies would you say those are three key baits to hone in on when you're looking for walleye and to kind of predict their their feeding patterns um maybe less so the goby um I know folks catch walleye on all kinds of different stuff. Yeah. Um, it, they're, they're trolling, you know, the reef runners or the bandits and these different big, big crankbaits. Um, it seems like the last couple of years trolling spoons has been really popular. Folks also catch them. There's, there's sort of two camps of fishing on Lake Erie for walleye. You're either a troller or you're a caster. It's kind of like the Hatfields and the McCoys. Uh, they don't like to associate with each other. Now, is that like regional? To, is that regional? You think, or is that just preference? Um, it might vary marina to marina, but I don't know. I, I think it's just preference. Okay. Um, if you want to go out and you want to fill your freezer, I would say trolling will catch your fish. Um, but if you want to go out there and really feel the fight of the walleye, um, I would say casting. I. Personally, I prefer casting. Uh, it's a ton of fun. When you're casting, you're usually throwing, call it like a mayfly rig. Uh, it's a single spinner with uh, some beads and then there's a hook that's usually tipped with a chunk of, of a night crawler or something like that. Right. Huck it out, let it drop uh, to a certain count. You know, So it's wherever you're marking fish type thing and start reeling it in. And sometimes those walleye just truck that bait and... Uh, it's, it's a lot of fun, but and arguably, those are ar- arguably this could be the best time of year to kind of get in. You don't have to go very far out. Like you were talking earlier that, you know, fall, those fish are kind of hugging the shores a little bit more. You don't have to go way out near to troll or anything like that. And you could do some casting. Yep. Yeah, definitely. This time of year, uh, the shore fishing picks up. Uh, there's been times where we are either coming in a little bit after dark or, or going out a little bit early before the sun rises. And on some of these break walls and stuff, you can see the headlamps and stuff of, uh, of the anglers, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder and casting for the fish that'll win the fall brawl. Maybe. Yeah. I'm interested to see, like you said, <clears throat> there's a lot of tournaments going on, a lot of money for grabs in the, in the month of October in, uh, in Erie. So, Anybody who, who follows those or want to follow those, I highly suggest to see where everyone's kind of going out at and get yourself out there and uh, find that bait. You don't have to go very far out. And, you know, jigging wraps are good right now. Even just jigging a minnow, you know, just uh, a jig head in a minnow tipped with the minnow and just kind of let float and drift a little bit and see what uh, see what yanks on the other end of the line. It's a good time of year to to get used to and maybe hone in on your casting game. If you've been trolling all summer for them, it's my favorite way to catch them. You know, just that one-on-one fight on the other end of the line. 
don't get me wrong. I like to troll too. And I think trolling is a necessity part, you know, a necessary part of your arsenal that you need to do in order to adapt to catch fish, um, walleye throughout, you know, the summer and tough months and things like that. But man, it's that one-on-one battle and feeling that fish, you know, smoke your bait and setting the hook is, is what keeps us all hooked for, for life. Definitely. All right, man. Well, Hey Matt, I appreciate you know, all that you do. I hope I can, uh, get you back on here in the future to keep talking walleye with you on Erie. I think it's something, uh, uh, a lot of anglers are always going to have questions on and any of your new findings, please feel free to reach out and jump on here anytime you want to. Yeah. I blab too much about how we manage and the state of the lake and all that stuff. I didn't even get to talk about some of the movement work that we're doing on Lake Erie with walleye and just about every other fish. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to come back, uh, some other time and chat more. Yeah. We'll definitely have you back on to do exactly that. I think, uh, there's a lot for, for folks to digest right now and kind of wrap their heads around and, you know, we'll get you back on here in the future. Sounds good. Yeah. We don't want folks to have like a three hour podcast to listen to. No, <laughs> I'll geek out on it, but I just know my listeners after one, at a certain point, they're going to be like, they're going to be going back and playing this again. They're going to say, what did you say about this? There's a lot of hidden pearls and keys and tips and things like that, that they can all, use to help put more fish in the boat if they go back and listen through this of, of some of the you know findings biological findings that you guys are, are are talking about and reporting sure so all right matt well hey where can folks uh find you at uh you want like my email or anything on social or anything like that where they can contact you or follow you uh, i don't i don't have anything um specific on social media but uh my my uh, email address with the uh, state of Ohio is uh, a bit of a mouthful. So it's Matthew, M-A-T-T-H-E-W dot Faust, F-A-U-S-T, at D-N-R dot state dot O-H dot U-S. And uh, yeah, if folks have any questions about stuff I said today or want to hear more about walleye movement or whatever, um, quickest way to reach me is shoot me an email and uh we're still working from home most days but uh love talking about lake erie and various fisheries that are on there so um yeah if anybody has questions shoot me an email and i'll uh i'll be in touch right on man anybody listening to this too i'll make sure to put that email maybe in the show notes if you don't mind that way they can just kind of click on it and have it you know accessible if they have any questions yeah not at all all right right on matt well hey i appreciate you doing what you're doing. Keep the, uh, keep the walleye population healthy and, uh, we'll be talking to you. Okay. Thanks Lee. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. You bet buddy. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great podcast right there. Thank you, Matt, for coming on and sharing all that great information with us. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Those are the kind of podcasts where, um, you can find the little, the little details and, you know, if you pay attention, it can really improve your time, um, with, you being more efficient on big bodies of water like Lake Erie, or if you've never been there before, it's going to help you dissect it a little bit more and, and figure out what to look for when you are out there. So yeah, make sure you guys hit Matt up, ask him some questions. If you have any more, that's great that he offered his email to, you know, to all of you to, uh, you know, drop him a question. If there's anything specific that you've always wondered about, or if there's something that you want to DM me to ask him about, please feel free to do so. And I hope you guys take advantage of that. So, okay, folks, that's it for now. I hope you guys are having a great fall. 
please remember to do me that favor and head on over and leave a review on iTunes and Spotify. Subscribe to the podcast and follow me on my social media, which is Instagram and Facebook. And both of those sites, you can just type in Freshwater Bite and you will find me on there. Remember to like the page on Facebook, follow along, all my kind of posts and everything like that I'll be throwing up on there. So yeah, that's it. Uh, Enjoy fall. And uh, before you know it, guys, we're going to be talking ice fishing here. So get ready. And as always, thanks for listening.